to Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkin. My guest today is John Syracuse, co-host of the Accidental Tech Podcast and a contributor to Ars Technica. Today's show is sponsored by HelpSpot. Customer service is your best marketing. Make every ticket count with HelpSpot. Welcome back to BitSplitting. My guest this time is John Syracuse, a professional software developer. Most of us know him better as a writer for Ars Technica and a podcaster himself. He recently retired his hypercritical podcast on 5x5 and has been podcasting anew with Marco Arment and Casey Liss on the Accidental Tech Podcast. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, I'm uh, excited to have you here. It's interesting. I had... Jackie Chang on last week, and I'm not doing some kind of like exhaustive <laughs> Ars Technica related uh, uh, exploratory mission here, although that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Um, but uh, I think uh, if you've heard a couple of the uh, earlier shows, you know that I like to get into kind of get away from the things we know you for as soon as possible to kind of set the stage for talking about other things related to John Syracuse. And I happen to know you a little bit already, so I know that you grew up in the New York area. And that is true. On Long Island. Yep. So uh, now you happen to live in the Boston area, real close to me. I see you every once in a while. Tell me a little bit about what your early life was like in Long Island. Did you uh, did you start? Uh, getting into computers when you were a kid? Did you wait until you were a little bit older for that to happen? How did that play out? So the computer stuff, computers I would uh, separate from programming. They're just using the computers like a kid who wants to play with them and, and run programs that other people wrote. Uh, that started pretty young. I, I don't remember. What year did the VIC-20 come out? Do you remember that? I would guess maybe 82 yeah, so, something like that. that. That was my first computer, but we didn't buy it. We rented it because it was expensive. And uh, I guess, you know, that was a thing that happened back then. You could rent a computer. Who knew? Uh, and we had that in the house. And I believe I was uh, I was also required to take a com- uh, computer course, like to learn computers. That's what they called it back then. You learned computers. Uh, and the computer course was on Apple IIs. So that must have come after the VIC-20, I guess. Uh and I have very dim recollections of what I learned there, but I do know I was very interested in the VIC-20 and very interested in what it could do, and the answer to that in the hands of a non-programmer was not much. Uh, and so we jumped right from the, the rented VIC-20 to the original Mac. That was quite an upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a thing that you hook up to your TV that does nothing, uh, that it seems almost useless, but I was like sit there fascinated and like, you know, press a key and watch a little yellow square appear on the screen. It was like the greatest thing ever. Uh, Switching up to the Mac, that, I mean, that was it. I was hook, line, and sinker into the Mac uh, and never looked back from that in terms of computer use. And I became obsessed with it. I was sitting in front of it for hours. I mean, like, just Mac Payne alone must have absorbed at least a good two years of my life if you just added up how long I spent in Mac Paint. Uh, what what were you doing in Mac Paint? Like uh, I was drawing pictures. I mean, like I mean, just to start with, like so I was I was ten when, or actually I was nine, I think I was nine when we when we got the the original Mac. And at nine years old, it was like brush mirrors was like magic. Do you remember brush mirrors? 
You know, um, I, I don't know that term. Uh, and I have a confession for you, which is I did not have a Mac until I was 17 or 18. You, so, you were working in Apple by then. <laughs> well, seven, I guess I was 17 then. I got a Mac very... my um, The trajectory of my Mac Apple industry lifestyle went from like getting a Mac in college. I was a very early college attendee and jumping straight you know, whole hook and sinker into Apple. So I actually grew up on uh, Amiga stuff more. Um, when I was a kid, actually, I had, my first computer was a Commodore 64. So kind of, you know, relatable to the VIC-20. I never really knew much about the VIC-20, but um, I think it was sort of a predecessor to the Commodore 64. Yeah, it was not It was not as good, believe me. Okay. Commodore 64. <laughs> but I can relate to how inferior to a Mac either one of those was. Um, but uh, so this brush mirror, it sort of, you know, I, I, I occasionally saw a Mac. I played with Mac Paint at my friend's house whose parents were, I guess, you know, more, more uh, enlightened than I was. But tell, tell us what brush mirror was. Uh, so Mac Paint was the drawing program that came with the Mac. And brush mirrors was a feature. It was up in the menu somewhere, I believe. I should actually just launch mini VMac and run Mac Paint now and check for myself, which is great thing about emulation i wish i wish we had even more and better emulators uh but anyway uh it would let you uh, it, it showed a diagram with a, a vertical line a horizontal line and then you know an x with 45 degree angles and if you clicked on any of those lines those are axes of, re- of reflection so if you just clicked on the vertical and the horizontal line and then you drew something in the upper right quadrant it would be mirrored in the you know the other three quadrants mm. right mm-hmm. uh, and so you could pick your axes of reflection and you know the if you wanted to make something really uh, cool and psychedelic you would just click all of them and then you'd have i don't know eight-way reflection and it was just basically a way of you draw over here and the equal thing gets drawn reflected in some other place right uh, and that that i mean that sounds like the stupidest thing ever but going from vic 20 to something where you would move this crazy mouse thing which obviously i had never seen before i mean i know no one probably no one had ever seen before unless you were into computer research or something uh, no regular consumer had seen before and you could move this thing around and in real time Lines would appear not just in reflection of what you're doing, but in potentially seven other locations mirrored. It was just it was just unbelievable, and so I would try to draw interesting patterns like that. I try to draw pictures. I mean, it was an infinitely uh, erasable piece of paper. It never you never wore through the paper by erasing. You always erased completely, uh, and it was just so simple and easy to understand. Like that was that old word of crazy computers, and now here I have this grid of pixels that were just black and white. Uh, and I turn them on and off, and it gives me a bunch of tools to turn them on and off. And you could do amazing things. With it. I mean, like the picture that, that came with, on the box of Mac Paint had like the the woman combing her hair, right? Right. Like that's just they just turned on and off the right pixels on the screen, and they made that picture. And I was fascinated by it. And so I was stuck to that machine. You know, well, I'm still sitting in front of one now. I'm stuck to it <laughs> for my entire life. And the key, I think, one of the key words there is pixel. Because on the VIC-20, obviously the screen was comprised of pixels, but if it was like the Commodore 64, you like any graphics programming you did was sort of like composed of those like preloaded. Well, it was character yeah. uh, character based, you know. Like it, it, first of all, it was on a TV screen, right. so you remember what television screens looked like in the '80s. You know, they, it was not conducive to pixel precise anything. Uh, and some of the things you could do with the VIC-20 were make, like, you know, you, you could do a character-based region 
like uh, you know a vertical rectangle that would fit like the capital letter C or something, but make it a solid block of color. And if you did runs of those, you could have solid stripes of color. So you could use them kind of like Lego bricks to make graphics by typing a series of characters, kind of like ASCII art, basically. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, but but that's it was an entirely different world. Like, and I didn't understand you know the, the commands that you could type at the prompt and stuff like that. I was just too young for that when the Vic Twenty came out. Uh, the Mac, I, we did get. I guess it was Microsoft Basic. I probably still have the box somewhere in the attic, but we did get a basic type thing, and I didn't have any books on basic, and I didn't know what programming was, but I did have the picture on the back of the box, which showed like a code listing in one window, and then like graphics in another window showing the, what the code listing had produced. And of course, the code listing, you know, there was a scroll bar, so you couldn't see the whole code listing. But like, I would stare at that thing, trying to divine what the rest of the program could possibly be. And of course, you know, typing in the parts of the program that I could see and trying to divine how programming worked. Uh, I should have just read, like, but there was probably a manual, and reading that probably would have been more efficient. But you know, as nine, ten years old, it was not very bright. Uh, right, it's the perfect age for exper- experiential or experimental uh, learning. Yeah, and so like I I taught my, I taught myself basic and had learned a little bit of basic from like the learning computers course, you know, enough to do, you know, 10 print hello 20 go to 10 that whole business. Uh but just tried to, you know, tried to figure out and this seemed like a whole separate world. Like this wasn't it didn't I guess it probably probably occurred to me but that this was, you know, that programming was how you made the things on the computer work. But because this was a Mac and this program was like Microsoft Basic, it was like, well, obviously the things I write in this Microsoft Basic are not going to be Mac programs. Like, it was more like a game that came with the computer, like the programming game. Because all you could do was make programs like prompted you for input and you would type something, you know, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, I actually heard an interview with uh, Don Melton recently from the Debug podcast. I don't know if you had a chance to I listen. listened to that today. So it was, it was, uh, you're, you're, you're sparking my memory of him describing sort of having the Mac and having to wait for the developer tools that really made it possible to do the same kind of thing that the Mac actually came with. Yeah, those tools would not have helped me at that point, but but it but this seemed like a totally separate endeavor. Like it, it was still a mystery to me how people made how do you how do you make a Mac Paint? I didn't know. All I know is that it came with this this thing, this basic thing. It's like, oh, you can it's like you could run this game on on the Mac that makes it look like an Apple. Uh, too, you know, where you get a basic prompt. It's like, all right, well, you know, here you go. Go to town. Write your little program. Right. Make sure you leave gaps in the line numbers. And so I played with that, uh, but I did not understand the basics of programming, and I did not go to the library to look it up. I did not have anyone to ask about. I don't. I didn't ask anyone about it. It just, it just didn't click in my mind. The story I've, I've told before is that well, I figured, okay, what can I do with it? So I can make a text adventure, right? Because I'd seen text adventures before. You know, you, you know, you were in a a field exits from north and west you see a blah blah blah, and make it make a vocabulary with some simple you know nouns and verbs and like okay well i'll make a text adventure that seems like something a kid can do because i know how to prompt for input i know how to print things i know how to check the input to see what it was and do something based on what they entered right uh but there was this word in the little basic printout uh said go sub and i didn't know what the hell that meant it wasn't an english word and i didn't know what sub was an abbreviation for other than perhaps submarine uh so i tried to write a text adventure without any subroutines basically like the the logic was just a series of nested you know conditionals that would just nest forever and once i got down pretty deep i'm like wait a second this is never going to end if they just keep typing certain series of things i'll never be able to like 
I, did, I didn't understand how to take a piece of code that was going to be used several times and put it somewhere. I mean, I could put it somewhere and jump to it, but then how do I know where to jump back to? And I also didn't know how to put like addresses in to jump back to because I just knew how to jump to line numbers. And I, you can see I didn't understand what programming was, right? right. So th that was my brief brush with programming. And I said, well, all right, well, that basic game is kind of boring. You know, I, after I had written a couple of bad text adventures that did not actually terminate and you could not actually finish and it was trivial to wander off into a section of the code that you could not come back from like all right that sucks yeah uh, and then i just used used the computer as a user uh for for a long time basically you know i, I mean i was heavily into computers i read all the, the computer magazines mac world mac user uh all byte magazine all those things all the way up to when i went off to college i was just a computer user not uh, and if you would ask me upon graduating high school, did I see myself uh, writing computer programs for a living? I would say, no, I don't even know how to do that. Why would I do that for a living? Right. Uh, well, I think, John, you and I should excuse ourselves for this shortcoming because I, sh I sort of share that with you. And in fact, when you said GoSub, it, had, it made like a flash memory for me trying to make some sense of this Commodore 64 programming guide as, you know, a 12-year-old or whatever. And that was one of the hangups was GoSub. I had no idea what it meant. And uh, I had a dad who was a computer programmer. I should have asked him. But instead, I just sort of like said, I guess this isn't for me and uh, put it on the shelf for many, many years. So yeah, I think about that with, with my own kids now. I was even thinking about it when I was listening to the uh, debug podcast with Don Melton. Like, uh, I even have a contemporary example now. Like, if, if I had just had like... 20 minutes with someone who knew what they were doing and knew how to talk to a kid, it would have clicked when I was 10. Like, it's not like it was beyond my comprehension. I just, I, I lacked, I, I lacked some basic understanding. And if I could just have someone explain it to me or and, and interrogate them, and I was like, oh, you, you know, you had that moment where you just get it. Like, I mean, there's probably a similar moment for people who learn C programming. You don't know what pointers are, and then eventually you understand what they are. And then, like, everything falls into place with C. It's like, oh, now I know what's going on, right? Right. That, that is if you didn't learn Assembler first, which would have been a big leg up. Uh, I wish I had had that as a kid because I feel like – I don't feel like I wasted all those years, but I would have been a much better programmer upon entering college uh, – I was not a programmer at all. I didn't know anything about programming. And that would have given me a huge leg up. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I filled that time with other activities. So in, in some respects, like I'm of two minds about that. But the, the contemporary example is that uh, people assume I'm, I'm a Mac developer and I'm not. Like I filled around with Coco and, you know, UI kid and made some little toy programs or whatever. Uh, but I basically need like, I would say now 24 hours with like someone who really knows Coco or UIKit cold to just interrogate them to give me the information that I need to say okay now now you don't need to tell me anything more now I'm just off to the races right and but because I never have like I've never had the motivation to do that myself I don't have any reason to write Mac programs and I haven't been inspired to write one or whatever I still feel like there are there are huge dark spots in my understanding of how the framework works like at the mechanic not not the language level not the you know computer science level that's all stuff is fine like i don't need you to explain objective c to me i don't need you to explain like it's just like how do these apis fit together and who calls what and what's how do you make an application right and like this isn't a barrier in my career or life but it's another example of where just just give me just give me like a day with one really smart guy who's a good teacher and boom like i'm off to the races and i can okay now now i can write any program in in coco and it'll just i'll i it's just a matter of experience now. It's just a, and not a matter of understanding. Uh, so, like, what I, I try to do with my 
my kids is like make sure that if there's something they want to know about like they don't they don't languish for 10 years for want of a person to sit down with them for an hour or 20 minutes or whatever and explain some basic concept to them you know what i mean right so should we start this uh this this day long coco education <laughs> right now we'll record until tomorrow night it would be tediously incredibly boring like because i'm gonna ask like basic annoying questions and just you know and, and i feel like i would exhaust the level of, of knowledge of any person very quickly because they i'd be asking like why do you do this why do, you do that i was like well i guess you could do this but i've never put in a program to do this like no I, I need to know i need to have the, the worlds of knowledge and just everybody just because I, I i read all the blogs i see like oh there's nine different ways to do this and some people like to use blocks for that and some people like to use you know this api and not that api and even just down to like how do you declare properties and do you auto synthesize like i know all the tech about it it's just a question of like no but just how does it work of course the the real fear is that the answer is it's going to be like web development which i do know it's going to be like there actually is no one answer. We're all just kind of doing what we want to do. And yeah, <laughs> there's, a, the there's an element answer. of that. But I think it would be great concept art to have um, so-and-so teaches John Syracuse how to program Coco. 24 episodes, one hour each. Fulfill that. Let's just do that. Let's just do that thing. And uh, it would be fun. It would be great to hear. You know what? Everybody gets to hear you, John, always being so smart about everything. And I think that there's a lust for John Syracuse doesn't know crap about Coco. Yeah, no, I don't. I know more than crap. That's the problem. Right. I, I have just enough right, information. To, I have just just enough information to be dangerous. Uh, but yeah, like the, the the thing I've always been waiting for is like, well, maybe someday I'll be inspired to write a program, and then I'll just you know, then I'll just do it because you have like a reason. Yep. To learn, you know, there's plenty of languages where you're like, oh, that's interesting, but I have no reason to ever write anything in that language so i know i'm never gonna never gonna really learn it like i may look at it and i may be able to recognize it and know a little bit about it but i'm never gonna learn the language until you have a project to write it in so i'm always on the lookout for something i might want to write in one of these things but i don't i'm not inspired to, this is why i'm not a mac or ios developer whereas i have constant inspiration for server side and web things that i would want to write if i had time but nothing on, on the client side yeah i don't know well, uh, you know, the fact that you spent so much time in Mac Paint reminds me of something I learned about you, I think, from either your finale or one of the last shows on your Hypercritical podcast, which is that, I mean, I mean, hopefully my memory is not getting this wrong, but you have done some amount of painting. Is that right? You learned that from the very first, the origin of the whole hypercritical thing, which was a 2009, I believe, blog post at Ars Technica when they had staff blogs. Uh, uh, it must, back. it must have come back on. It must have come back up in uh, in recent. It, it, it might have. I haven't. I haven't so, but yeah. but I learned this because I learned this in the context of uh, I think also learning that you have your own art hanging on your walls, and you enjoy it, and that's great, but kind of like uh that's this is all a hint to me the fact that you were spending hours upon hours in mac paint and later painting proper quote-unquote proper art um what was the role of art in general in your youth were you were you given lessons did you have like a particularly inspiring school uh class experience how, how did that how did that sort of become prevalent? So 
that, that's another uh, similarity with the uh, the Don Melton interview because he had a similar background with uh, the art stuff, and it was it was the same kind of experience where uh, this was something that I was uh, that adults told me that I had aptitude for. So when I was very young, uh, you know, would draw pictures and adults would praise them and other kids would be impressed by them. And when you're very young, you don't know what the baseline is for how well are you supposed to be able to do this thing. But it became clear that uh, all the adults in my life were telling me, uh, you're you're going to be an artist. This is something you should pursue. You have a time. The same way when any kid demonstrates any aptitude for something, you know, musical aptitude, they'll encourage him to take up an instrument. If he's good at sports, they'll encourage him to go out for sports, right? So my parents were very big on encouraging me to uh, use my gifts for whatever. Uh, and so it manifested very young, and by the time I was eight, I think, my mother had me in private art lessons. Uh, it's just, you know, a one-on-one type of thing, which were very expensive, and if I had known anything about finances, I would have said, like, this is not a, a thing you want to do for an eight-year-old. But anyway, uh, I was in those in, from about eight until 16. So uh, that, you know, my life consisted of uh, go to school, do whatever other activities, but also once a week go to art lessons. And the art lessons were kind of like, it was kind of nice, have, you know, just having a one-on-one type of thing. It went through the... Uh, like the kung fu movie type training right. thing, where you where you start like we started off with just pencils, right? Uh, and it was uh, as Don uh, Melton mentioned, like drawing what you see. It was like a bunch of stuff. Put the stuff on the table, draw that stuff. Which, in retrospect, I'm amazed that I did that because it's like the most boring thing for a kid to do. Like you don't want to draw stuff like pieces of fruit or knickknacks from you know the house or like uh, plastic animals or sculptures or rocks or just we just put it all together and it's just like that's 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 the level of the training where you're doing like the annoying repetitive exercise that you know, that you know you're upset about the master for and stuff like that. Uh, and then once you graduate from that, you can go to like uh, oil pastels, and I was in them for a year or two. And then watercolors, and I was in them for a year or two. And then acrylics, and a year or two. And then like the I don't know if this is the pinnacle, but it's when I bailed out. <laughs> you know, when I was 16, it was oil paints. That was the thing I was in at, at the end of the thing. Uh, and I really appreciate that that sort of, you know, classic art education I had sort of as a background noise throughout my entire life. And, of course, during this time as well, I'm doing my own thing. Uh, my childhood bedroom was covered with what were basically uh, drawings that I had copied from fantasy artists that I admired, like Larry Elmore and Keith Parkinson and other pictures of dragons, people with swords, uh, my own made-up pictures of spaceships, you know, things from Tolkien, unicorns, like, covered with pictures that I had done. And then in frames around the house were all the pictures I did at art lessons. I would produce something of, uh, periodically from, from these art lessons. They would, you know, initially be, uh, you know, oil pastel things and then various kinds of paintings or whatever. And so those would go up around the house or those would be carted off to relatives. So at my various relative houses, you'll find, like, some picture I did when I was 10 hanging in their bathroom That's or something, great. right? Uh, so I was told during this entire time, you're going to be an artist when you grow up because clearly this is this is the one thing that you do and this is going to be your profession. And I like doing it, but I think I was probably smart enough at a certain point to realize that artist is not like, it's not the same as like doctor or lawyer in terms of uh, professions that people can just enter into. You know, you can just be, another run-of-the-mill doctor there's plenty of doctors in the world there's no lottery you have to win but like how many people get to make money just being an artist that is much harder to do you have to be kind of be a famous artist you don't have to be a famous doctor to make a living or or anything else uh 
so maybe the pragmatic side of myself pushed me away from that maybe it was just i don't know like i mean like i said in the hypercritical the, the original hypercritical blog post what i think i realized as i was going through this is that my particular aptitude was not art really not because because eventually by the time i was in high school by the time i was 16 I, I could see my own limitations as an artist. I knew I was never actually going to be a great artist. Right? I had aptitude, and I exhibited that aptitude young, but I was never going to be a great artist. And I realized what I was mostly good at was, after having drawn something, knowing that I have inaccurately represented what I'm trying to draw. So you put the thing on the table, I draw the thing, I try to draw it, I draw a line, I look at it, I say, no, that, that line is wrong, and here's the way that it's wrong. Like, I could tell when it was wrong, and I think that is an extremely important skill for an artist to have, because when you see most people, little kids, adults, anything included, and, you, and you, you put something in front of them, like a little model of a horse, like a kid's toy, and said, draw that from the angle that you currently see it, they will produce a mess. And if you ask them, is this an accurate representation? They'll say no, but then you say, okay, what's wrong with it? Why is th why does this look bad? And why, you know, why does it not look like a photo? What is actually wrong with it? They'll be like, oh, it doesn't seem right. Maybe, maybe the legs are wrong. Like they won't actually know. And if you don't actually know, all you can do is erase the line you have, but you can't improve it. And so my skill was to look at it and know exactly how it's wrong. And if I know exactly how it's wrong, I can just fix it to make it more right. And then I look at what I've done and say, okay, that's still not right. And eventually that process short circuits itself in your head and you just draw it the first or second time more or less the right way. Um, right. So what, uh, what's sort of obvious to me and obvious to probably many of our listeners is you are identifying as your actual like superlative talent the very hypercritical nature that you have been celebrating recently in like the hypercritical podcast and the way that you write about Mac OS 10 and et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of a side, it, it, it's you, I guess, appreciating that that is a talent and allowing yourself to indulge in that. It's more of a worldview because like, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not the same. Like I said, in the article it sounds like something terrible. Like, Oh, you're just always dwelling on what's wrong with things. But in, in anything drawing or in anything, uh, I mean, and even just in programming, like that's, this is part of just uh, every programmer has is just through experience. Right. But, uh, I think I've also explained this on another podcast, but maybe people haven't listened to every single podcast I've been on, so it's worth explaining again. Uh, so when you're a programmer, if you write a program, you write some little program, and then you, you keep working on it, and you work on it, eventually it gets, like, big and crufty, you know, like other programmers know, know what that kind of feeling is. And you're like, oh, if I had structured this in a different way, it'll be cleaner. So you go and refactor it, and you move this stuff out into this, and you rearrange it, and then time passes and maybe you need the program to do something you hadn't expected before like oh i didn't really factor it along this axis so it's very difficult to change this behavior let me refactor it in this way and like that, that's how programs develop right uh beginning programmers will write if you can give them like a simple program to make they'll write something just ugly and crufty and an experienced program will look at it and know right away okay well you you really should have factored that out and this really should be independent of that and this has side effects and it shouldn't and you haven't thought concretely about what the purpose of this module is here and it's doing too many jobs and they're entangled in a way that's not useful and like all those things that experienced programmers can do and if you give that same task to a more experienced programmer they will write what the inexperienced programmer would write after revising it 17 times right only they'll just jump right to that one right yep and that continuum of experience and programming of like I don't have to write the first 
80 crappy versions of this program. I can jump right to that other one. And then realizing that two years from now, the same should be true. You should look back at the program you wrote two years ago and, oh, my God, I would never write it that way for X, Y, and Z reason because I'm more experienced and knowledgeable now. I would write it this way. Like, that's the continuum, right? That entire continuum that we call experience and whatever is knowing what's wrong with something. You look at the beginner's program and you see you see everything that's wrong with it. And not just like it looks kind of gross to me, but you know exactly what's wrong with it. You know, like precisely because because you've made those mistakes in the past, because you understand the 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 axes along which a program is likely to be changed and the ones that's not likely to be changed. Like we just call that experience in programming, but it's it's an example of looking at something and seeing what's wrong with it. And I think everything, everything you choose to do has that quality. If you can't tell, not just that there's something wrong, but exactly what it is wrong, you can't fix it to make it better. Anything, you know, uh, sports, songwriting, parenting, cooking, everything. You have to be able to know exactly what's wrong. Otherwise, if you just do it again, you're just going to make the same stupid mistake. When you can snatch the pebble from my hand. Well, folks, I'm happy once again to be sponsored this time by HelpSpot. HelpSpot is a customer service must. HelpSpot allows you to convert chaotic, disjointed email interactions into structured help desk tickets that can be easily managed, as well as providing customers self-service opportunities using the integrated service center. Real-time reporting makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening and identify problems and trends more quickly. Make your organization's customer service what sets you apart from competitors and give HelpSpot a try. BitSplitting listeners can get 15% off by using the promo code BITS2, good through June 1st. Find out more at HelpSpot.com. You know, one of the things I like about HelpSpot is the way that they emphasize the way that giving great customer support can be a big differentiator for you and your product or your business. Uh you know, I run my own business, Red Sweater Software, as well as this podcast, and it's always been very important to me personally to give the highest level of customer service that I possibly can. And having that as a goal is one thing, but if you can't follow through on it, it doesn't mean much. So using a tool like HelpSpot to really keep you, keep you and your commitments to your customers in check is a great idea. So consider giving HelpSpot a try. If you run a business or are involved in the customer service for uh, the business you work for. It could really help out and uh, give you a leg up on the competition. Once again, the URL is helpspot.com and use the promo code BITS2 and you'll get 15% off your purchase. Thanks again, HelpSpot, for sponsoring the show. And uh, at some point along the line, obviously you started taking this ability to see art and look and see what was wrong with it and um, you applied that. Uh, obviously, you're applying it today to your profession as a software developer. Um, give us some kind of idea where this art, you know, you, you, you hinted at like, oh, the art's not going to make a, a guaranteed career. I can't just go say I'm an artist and have people pay me was uh, moving. You know, you also told us that uh, you weren't a natural programmer as a kid. You sort of put it on the shelf. Um, was, was there, uh, did you go to college? Was there, uh, programming another, another exposure to programming that got you kind of pulled back in? Yeah. College was where that happened. So when I went off to, to college, I, I decided to major in computer engineering because I did like computers. 
Uh, but I didn't want to be a computer science major because that was just all programming, right? And also that was in the liberal arts school, and, and there were a bunch of wusses. Uh, so I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to go to the engineering program. So I was like, well, computer engineering is one of those majors they had made up just around the time I was entering uh, college. It's kind of like it's basically electrical engineering mixed with computer science. Uh, realistically, in the school that I went to, I went to Boston University. Computer en- their computer engineering curriculum at the time was basically just exactly the electrical engineering curriculum with like a tiny little sprinkling of computer science. So like by the time I'm into my my like fourth level physics course, I'm like, Jesus, do I have to know this to use computers? It seems not. It seems I don't need to know anything about quantum mechanics. Anyway, it was it was like an engineering major. And in retrospect, I appreciate it, but when I was in the midst of it, I said, Boy, what the heck did I sign myself up for? This is very heavy on the engineering and very light on the computers. Uh but luckily, like I entered college in nineteen ninety three, I guess. Uh you know, the internet was just hitting, and that was an infinite source of distraction. Because another thing that I had that I had not had experience with at home was networking. I didn't have a modem until I went off to college, so I had never done any kind of networking except for like Apple Talk networking, like at the school and stuff, uh, and had no experience with BBSs or anything like that. So my first exposure to the internet was, you know, on an Ethernet connected Xterm, right? Which which was a pretty amazing experience. Uh, when you haven't had any network access at all. And so, but to do that, of course, these were all Unix machines. And so you had, you know, the VT220s or whatever, which are just terminal-based things, or you had the X-Terms, which is, you know, X-Window system and, and uh, Unix shell prompts and stuff like that. My introduction was like, all right, if I want to do anything with these computers and on this internet thing that's out there, I have to learn this Unix thing, which I had also never experienced because, you know, I turned up my nose at DOS, which, you know, or any other command line interface. Once you had the Mac, why would you ever have a command line? Right. And so school was my introduction to Unix. And surprisingly, I found that uh, Unix appealed to me. I, I not, another Zen moment. I, I really should make a, I was thinking of doing a post, blog post about this at some point. But uh, I think I printed out a bunch of like man pages or like guide to Unix. Like I was probably using like uh, going through a series of gopher services to find some kind of guide to teach me Unix. I just had enough bootstrap knowledge to seek out and print on like the computer center printers. Like this tells you about Unix. Again, I don't know why I didn't just go to a bookstore or something. Eventually I did. Right. But. Well, because books are expensive. And when you're in college, you know, yeah, no, I like had so much, just, however much. I had so much disposable income though in, in college. When I think about that, yeah. <laughs> that like, cause I very quickly, like, so I wasn't here in Boston, right? Uh, I, I bought like every, any kind of pink spined animal covered book that I could find. Like the O'Reilly books just multiplied in my life after this. But the first thing I did was I got the, I, I printed out stuff, uh, you know, just, and, and I read it and, this is where this is this, this was not a person or anything helping me, but it was whoever wrote this thing. I think this one particular passage, like I, you know, I attained enlightenment, uh, you know, to use to continue the analogy. It was showing the ls command, like you know, to list files, right? And one of the first examples, this is, must have been very early, early in the explanation. I had some introductory text, blah blah. Here you are at your shell prompt, type ls to list files, and the, the example they gave was like ls file one or something like that, right? Right. Uh, and they're showing you here's your prompt. You type that. And then on the next file, it, on the next line, it said file one. And then it was back at the prompt. And I stared at that. I'm like, why the hell would you make a command? You type ls and then a word, and then it shows you the word again. You just type the word. Why? It's not it's showing you a word that you already typed. It makes no sense. And I stared at that for a second. And I'm like, this, there must be some reason they're showing this to me. And I just stared at it until, like, until it sunk in. Like, it's like, oh, I see. 
it's like a series of small commands to do a simple task, but like that you could change, you know, then you understand like, oh, if I type LS, F, and then star, right. it's the shell program's job to interpret the star and expand out the thing. Then the expanded arguments get past the LS command. The LS command simply prints out the things that you've given it, assuming the files exist. And it's, you know, like the, it just fits the, like that is kind of like the Zen cone of Unix, LS file, file. Right. It's like, you, it's like a trivial, <laughs> trivially simple, simple example that, uh, nonetheless, those of us who are now like experts in Unix shell shell prompts do use sometimes. We use it as does this file actually exist? Um, yeah, or, or like our understanding that you could you could build it's like a bottom up approach. You could build a complicated, interesting system by a series of simple commands, and they were starting off with this with this simple thing like. If you have like a command that does that is actually useful because of the way the system works together, yeah. And a command that does some other set, and then you you know start building it up and you start, you know, grokking how Unix works. So I was hooked on Unix because that philosophy appealed to me much more so. That, like DOS never appealed to me with all its capital letters and the the short file names and the weird commands and just like it didn't it didn't have a philosophy that I could sense the way Unix did. Yeah. Uh, so I was hooked on Unix, uh, and of course the web came along and I got into that and I got into web programming and the other highlight part i started taking programming courses as part of my curriculum at school so i took my first course in c and by that point having someone actually teach to me you know it was much more useful than me staring at the back of the basics box and then you know i quickly understood all the basics of c uh and then i took assembly courses and i really uh, you know took those very well and enjoyed that so like programming was a thing uh and ha- being taught in a college atmosphere actually did really help me and then of course I, like i said i bought every o'reilly book under the sun and read them from cover to cover multiple times on programming languages on unix on just like on you name it so i was just in information absorption mode and there was nothing to distract me because i didn't have to ever go to sleep uh and i didn't have any parents around <laughs> and i was away at school and i just uh absorbed all i possibly could and i was going through the curriculum so, you know, taking all my courses, doing all my stuff, and I enjoyed all the various different things. I enjoyed the mechanics course. I'm like, oh, mechanical engineering is kind of fun, but it didn't, it didn't, I don't know if I could see myself doing his career. And all the electrical engineering courses and all the science and physics and all the math courses, which I did not like. Uh, and every once in a while, I'd take an English course. <laughs> you know, they, they would sprinkle them in there. Uh, and what I was also doing was, of course, farting around the web and on Usenet and making, you know, web pages and figuring out HTML and CSS and all that stuff. But I was also writing little programs that we would use on the computing system at BU amongst my friends to, you know, do various things to and with each other to communicate little instant messaging type programs or uh, uh, programs to calculate statistics on something and, and have competitions and like... I was constantly making little programs, and I would want my little programs to be used by people. And by the time I was about to graduate, I said, what do you want to be doing for the rest of your life? It's like, well, when given, basically, you know, what what have I been doing with my free time during these four years of college? All I've been doing is programming, writing programming, writing programs, have, distributing the people, having them use them, having them complain back to me and say what they do or don't like, adding features, fixing bugs. That's what I'm choosing to do on my own. So it's like, you know what? you're a programmer because this is like of all the things you could say, well, I might be interested in that. I might be interested in this. I was just spending, you know what programming is like. It sucks you in. You just find yourself spending days, weeks, months of your life, just tweaking this program and trying to make it better and fixing bugs and, and trying to make it do things you couldn't make it do and refactoring it. And like, I realized I was a programmer. And so that's what I chose to do with my career. And I I have not regretted it because of all the things that we've just discussed, the art and even things like writing and stuff like that. It's, it's the one thing that I have found so far 
that I'm able to do day after day, year after year, uh, and not get sick of it. Uh, I totally relate to that. It also has the advantage of being unlike art, unlike music, something you can easily be paid for. So I guess there's that as well. Um, yeah, and uh, when I thought about art too, like I would think, oh, do you want to be like a commercial artist where you got to draw like someone's logo or something for an advertisement and, uh, you know, or, or a billboard or there was no computer type art. And I was like, I don't want to do creative things for other people, but somehow writing like, you know, some stupid CRUD application for the web for something that I'm not even interested in, even though I'm not, I may not be interested in the end result of that or what it's going to be used for or whatever. The program itself is like a little world and game in itself. I can make the most beautifully constructed, nicely designed, easily refactorable, bug-free, reliable, uh, you know, invoicing program, even if I don't care about invoicing. You know what I mean? Right. And that, I think, is what separates it from creative endeavors, because I would not want to do art for somebody else, like draw pictures or something like that, because I feel like that's more of like a personal expression, whereas... I will make your whatever program because that world inside of the program is a world unto itself, you know, sort of independent of the end product. Well, it's like the, it's like you're, what you're saying is the programming equivalent of putting the boring things on the table and asking you to draw them is challenging and interesting in a way that keeps your attention in, in a way that the drawing wouldn't have. Yeah, and I also, I felt like, I mean, I feel like this with like musical instruments as well, even to a greater degree. I feel like I, I top, uh, not that I topped out on drawing or musical instruments or any of those other creative endeavors, but that I could see that I was going to top out and I was not going to be, uh, you know, as great as I wanted to be. Whereas in programming, I have still not topped out. Like, I feel like, I feel like I can continue to get better and year after year, I do get better as evidence of when I go back and look at something I wrote many years ago and say, boy, I would not have made those mistakes this time. Like, I, I feel like I have more headroom. I have not reached the limit of my abilities, you know, except with limited, you know, obviously I'm never going to write the next great 3D engine because I don't have enough math skills and stuff like that. But within the realm of just, you know, programming, I continue to get better and I don't see an end to that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas with, if I just spent my entire life doing art, I would never be as great as some of the, you know, the, the, even, you know, the, the greatest just commercial illustrators that are out there and music even more so. Like I, I, you know, played piano and I learned guitar and, and, and college and stuff. And I was terrible at all of them. And I could see that there were fundamental things that would keep me from ever being even an adequate musician. So it's kind of like, that makes me lose interest, but programming, maybe I'm just deluded, but I don't, I don't see that. I can see myself continuing to get better. And I feel like, you know, you can get better than this. What you're doing now is still crap. You know what I mean? Well, I think you get better at it in part as a natural consequence of that never getting tired of it, never being, uh, never, I mean, obviously we get tired of specific programming tasks, but the fact that you, it keeps your attention like that. Um, you know, I can relate to that. I, I'm also, uh, have had interests in art and music and other things, but the difference is, you know, when I sit down with a guitar, usually after an hour or two, I get, kind of worn out of it. I want to put it down and I want to do something else. And that's not, not to say that I don't like playing the guitar, but if I liked playing the guitar as much as I liked staring at Xcode, then I don't think, I don't think there's like a natural skill ceiling that would stop me from getting really good. And so, so just to say like, maybe it's more that it's actually in the cards for you to spend the time that it takes to get really good. 
Yeah, art is probably like that with me. I suppose if I was so interested in it that I just could not tear myself away, as I couldn't between the ages of like 8 and 16, like I said, covering my walls with pictures. Like I was just drawing constantly and progressing and getting better. Uh, just the, like the rate of increase, uh, you know, it tapered off a little bit there. But things like music, like I have no rhythm, right? And if you don't have rhythm and are also basically tone deaf, that's a real <laughs> limiting factor for music. Like rhythm is surprisingly important. And it's one of those type of gifts like sense of direction where it's kind of like, you know, there's nature and there's nurture, but if you don't have rhythm, you are like you're never going to be a musician in any form, any decent. You know, so while I enjoyed noodling around on the guitar and I, I could play a whole bunch of songs on, on the piano and stuff, and sometimes sound kind of impressive, you didn't notice that my rhythm was terrible. It was just enough to amuse me, and it was very clear to me that music was never going to go anywhere. Art, if I had been more interested in it, and if I had felt like the prospects of me being able to do what I want with art and be successful. Uh, and I had to continue to pursue it, I would be way better than I am now. Like, I don't I don't put pen to paper. I don't do anything artistic visually almost at all anymore. Like, you know, other than playing Pictionary every once in a while. And then I realized, geez, you haven't drawn anything in, in forever. Uh, I, you know, maybe I could have pursued that. But, like, it's you have to go after what, what it is that you find yourself doing uh, you know, when you have the choice of what you want to do. And what I found myself doing constantly was writing, pro to much to my own surprise, having not written programs, you know, during my basically entire youth, I just constantly write programs. At this point in my life, it's a struggle for me not to write programs, like, because I have the whole RSI thing. I try to right. prevent myself from coming home and writing my own little programs. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I relate completely, and I sometimes feel like it's to the like to the life enrichment expense of all of the other things I could be doing. Um, it's almost like <laughs> compulsory. If there is time and it's at my discretion, then it will be this great, adorable challenge of programming. So I can definitely see, um, I think we're on the same wavelength there. Uh, so, but uh, you know, you, you got this uh, computer engineering degree I guess you started in 93, you must have ended up graduating 97, 98. Um, is that sort of yeah, on the right timeline? Yep. And, yep. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier, you, you grew up in Long Island. I know that you live in the Boston area now. Have you been here ever since college? Well, we I got married right after college, and my wife uh, and I went down to Georgia because she got her master's at Georgia Tech. She was also an engineering major. Uh, so I lived and worked down in Georgia, but I was telecommuting to the same company that I had worked for in Boston when I left, which is a web development company. Uh, so I was in Georgia for enough time for her to get the ma her master's, and then we both moved back up here, and we haven't haven't left since. And how do you feel about that? <laughs> I like it. I mean, it's a good compromise place because she's she's from Illinois, and there's no way I was ever going to move there. Yeah. Uh, and as much as I love Long Island, I do not want to commute into the city. My dad did that for many years of his career, and that is not something I wanted to sign up for, commuting from Long Island into the city. Uh, and I didn't want to live in the city itself, and there are not a lot of tech jobs out on Long Island. I mean, I, maybe there's a little bit more now because of the magic of the internet, but back then it was like your options were limited. Whereas the Boston area, we both liked because we went to school here for four years. This is where we met. It's kind of like a, a training wheel city where it's not like as big and scary as New York City, but it is still you know, a proper metro area with some culture and stuff like that. And there's tons of opportunity for tech jobs you know, all around the, the Boston metro area So for both of us. Uh, so I'm I'm perfectly happy uh, settling here. The only downfall, of course, as we have both of us uh, cried about 
on several occasions is the pizza in Boston sucks. Lack of pizza and bagels, yes. It is a big it's a big sacrifice. It's uh so do you do you uh do you have family in Long Island still? Do you go down there? Do, when and if you do, do you do you have like a pizza fix you 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 get? I used to go down there more because my parents lived down there for a while, but then they moved to Colorado. So now I'm not going there to visit them anymore. My grandparents were there, but they both passed away. So we don't have any occasion to go down there for them. I have still some cousins on the island. And, you know, uh, it's like the the reasons to visit there are decreasing because a lot of people have, most people have moved away from there. But every time anyone went down there and was coming back up here, like my brother used to go down there a lot to get his hair cut, believe it or not, (laughs) uh, from his old haircutter down there and to visit my grandparents and whoever else was down there. I would always have them bring back bagels. And if I went down, I would always buy two dozen bagels on my way back up and just, you know, drive up with them uh, and then put them into the freezer. Yep. And pizza, yeah, anytime you're down there, you got to get some pizza. Uh, so the the uh, sort of illicit bagel trade going back and forth from Long Island to Boston has been going for years, but now it has been tapering off. I still have some in the freezer now for my last trip down there, which was like a month or two ago. But That's the great thing about bagels is you can save them and they stay pretty darned good. Pizza, not so much. Like you really got to get the pizza within a few few minutes of. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah, you gotta eat that right there. But you know, and same thing. Go down there. You know, get some pastries. Like there, there are good options here. Like Mike pastries is is perfectly acceptable. Italian pastries. It's not the best. It's not the worst. Uh, but it tastes more or less the way I want it to. If you're pizza you know, and bagels are worse. If you're like me, uh, pizza in the Boston area, there are some pizzas that. I will eat them and enjoy them, but nobody better dare compare them to an actual great New York pizza. And uh, I think that's one of the things that people have a hard time discerning. Like, It's not that I'm saying that this food that you love is an inedible thing. It's just not what you are saying, what you are claiming that it is. And I I have this even even to a greater extent and with more passion and with more... um, with more like uh, authority on the burrito front coming from California. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about pizza, though, because you're not coming from that 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 place. And the thing I always say to people about pizza is like, like when, when I was growing up, uh, I didn't know that bad pizza existed. When I was growing up, there was, there was no uh, like Domino's pizza, no Papa John's. I mean, they existed, but they weren't around me. Same, like there was also no Walmart and Kmart's near me, which I realize is an aberration in America as well. But like these stores existed in the rest of the country, but they were not on Long Island. We had local pizza places, uh, and you know, anytime you know, say you stay after school for some activity and they get pizza, they did have pizza there and you need it, right? You go over a friend's house or a party or whatever and they get pizza. Or you're over someone orders out pizza. It didn't matter where you were getting the pizza from. There's not like one good place that everyone would get it from. There was pizza in every single strip mall. You could not go 20 yards without, uh, you know, finding a pizza place and a bagel place. And there were better ones and worse ones. But the baseline was so incredibly high that, like, you just assumed you were going to have oh, pizza or whatever. And I did not travel a lot as a kid, or at least, you know, we, we went up skiing and stuff like that uh, in, in New England. But we didn't get pizza there, right? I didn't realize that in the rest of the country, it's not like that. You can't just go outside your door, no matter where you live, drive for five minutes, get some pizza, and have it be reasonably good. In fact, it was the opposite. You could drive for miles, and you could just never find anything except for awful, awful pizza. And, that, you know, when I say awful, that's why I think uh, it's strange that you uh, appreciate it so much, is that I just wanted the pizza to taste the way pizza tasted like when I was a kid at all these places. And that is a particular way and a particular style of pizza, right? 
and every place else in the country, they were just like, there's not much to pizza. It's like dough, sauce, cheese, and maybe a little bit of something extra. If you screw up any of those, one of those things, it's just forget it. So it would just sometimes just bad quality, like Domino's, just, you know, bad ingredients, bad everything, like whatever. But other times it was just, this is a good quality product, but it doesn't taste the way I expect it to taste. And New York has so many, in the New York metro area has so many pizza places, all of which make very similar tasting and feeling and appearing pizza. That's what I want, and I can't get it you here. And even though you can it. find, yeah, you can find things that are okay food products, but they don't, and the bagels is the same exact thing. It's a, it's a circular bread thing. You can find a million bagels in Boston, and none of them are right. They just are not right. Maybe maybe you like them. Maybe they're good. Maybe they taste good, but they're not what, and the same thing with bagels. You go anywhere to get bagels, and they were all a fairly consistent baseline quality, good ones, bad ones, but all within that baseline. They were all had a similarity. You come up here. I don't know. I don't know what I'm getting. It's like a, it's like a donut with, like a savory donut or it's a round bread with a hole in the middle. Like it's not, it's not what I, not what I'm looking for. And so I just, I just don't eat pizza around here, and I just don't get bagels. Like I just don't do it. Whereas it was a constant staple of my diet down there. It's it's exactly the same as that for me with burritos. And to answer your question or to speculate about why I might feel sort of that way with New York pizza, I think. Um, there's an element of just let's face it, New York pizza actually is a refined product that has withstood the test of millions of people over what a hundred years. I don't know how long they've been making this product in the area, um, but it's 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 like a it's a highly refined process, and so there's some like I th- I believe there is some intrinsic superiority to New York pizza. And then on yeah. and then on top of that, I um I credit the Bay Area where I grew up in California with um not having perfect New York pizza, but as with so many things, being pretty good at having a pretty great or at least something that alludes strongly to the original, pretty great imitations of a lot of um regional kind of like favorites so like you can't really get a great new york bagel either but like you know people try to make new york at least people try and like that's <laughs> that's a step up from most of the places in the country making pizza um yeah and so i had this like reference point for like what a great style of pizza might be and then to go to new york and and have my first slice of actual new york pizza and have it be you know you can get crappy pizza in new york unfortunately but to have it actually be from a place where it was hitting the nail on the head as far as i was concerned that was just sold it's like okay i have to grant it to you new york you do this you do this right and nobody else is 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 matching you so that's my Uh, i've always i've always wondered like if you were to bring if you could like teleport or, you know, spatially displace a pretty good New York pizza place up here. Now, to me, it would be like, oh, okay, well, now now I can go someplace and get pizza. There's no contest, right? But I wonder if the local residents of Massachusetts would notice any difference between the pizza they were selling and the pizza you can get every place else around here. Like, would it seem any better to them? Like, that th- 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 this is not... right. 
I mean, maybe they would dislike it because it's not it's not like what they expect from pizza because what they uh, I don't know what the hell they expect because there's so much so I feel like there's so much variation in pizza around here all bad variation but like it's a quality that that doesn't necessarily stand out because I would say like why doesn't just some family who owned a pizza place down there come up here and do the same thing up here like shouldn't they just crush all their competition and run them out of business <laughs> but I don't but I don't think they would and same thing with the bagels now with the bagels there's debates of whether because that's so simple it's just like dough right there's debate whether it's even possible to make that up here because of like maybe you need New York water and some people have New York water shipped in and but they use different equipment to make it and like there's something with the bagels that I don't understand why they can't get right. The thing that makes me think that it is possible to make good pizza up here is that Pizzeria Regina in the North End is fine. Like it's not superlative New York pizza, but yeah. When I eat it, I'm like, all right, if we went to some random strip joint pizza cl- strip joint <laughs> strip mall pizza place when I was a kid and we got this, I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. I wouldn't go back to that place and say, oh, we got to go to that place again, but it's fine. It tastes, it tastes correct to me. That, right? That's what I described in the burrito um, milieu as when I had a, a surprisingly good burrito in Boston. I, I gave it my highest praise yet for Boston burritos, which was, this is better than the worst burrito I ever had in San Francisco. Yeah. And that's kind of sounds like the same. But uh, honor, but it, it, it tasted correct. Yeah. Like it tastes like, all right, this is a burrito. Yes. It's not a world's greatest burrito, but it's a burrito. Versus like going, what are they doing? You know, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. is, and and I found unfortunately, like you, know, you can't go home again. Like since I've left Long Island, there are now Kmart's and Walmart's on Long Island. There are now Domino's pizzas. I believe there are people living on Long Island ordering pizza from Domino's Pizza, and those people should be ejected from the island immediately. <laughs> But I believe they are there, and like it's slowly the you know like the culture is changing. You can't fight like the you know the mass commercialization of commodity type of things, and eventually, like all the people who can distinguish between Domino's Pizza and real pizza will like be extinct, and will just be Domino. I mean, it's, it's the idiocracy future, right? I mean, just homogenous culture, giant chains that dominate everything with a terrible product. That's that's a nightmare scenario. It's not quite there yet, but. Every time I go back home, I'm amazed to see, like, when I go bagels now, like, when I go to bagel place, now I have to really look for the right place to get bagels, because some places the bagels aren't great. They're still better than Boston bagels, but I'm like, no, they're not, like, I feel like the average quality is going down. Yeah. Especially, like, I mean, size is one, like, making the gigantic bagels, that's a trend that did not start on Long Island, but is now filtering in there. Make, the bagels are getting too big. Then there's no, and there's no hole, right? Like, the hole is just like a... <laughs> it's all squished together. It, it's okay for it's okay for the hole to be squished up if you know if the bagel is still reasonably small because that, that's you know it depends. But it's they shouldn't be the size of dinner plates, and that's kind of like a well bigger is better, right? Like you know an American food chain kind of will compete by having gigantic bagels, and that is filtering down to Long Island now. And I don't like it. You don't like it. All right. Well, um, back in Boston, you graduated from Boston University. And I guess uh, you said you went down. So, so, so you got a job up here, but then you went down to uh, Georgia, Georgia, Atlanta. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And um, eventually ended up back here. And I guess have you? You're sort of famous among our nerd friends of uh, for being a great um, champion of champion of Perl, the Perl scripting language. Uh, I hope that wasn't <laughs> disparaging of Perl to call it a quote scripting language, but I'm glad I'm glad you caught that yourself because I was going uh, to point it out. My, my John Syracuse hypercritical sensors are on tonight, yeah. so uh, you are a fan of the Perl programming language, and um, 
I guess, uh, did you end up getting a job straight out of college that led you into Pearl? Had you learned Pearl in college? And are you still, uh, do you still have the luxury of using Pearl in your day-to-day work? Uh, so I started using Pearl, yeah, when I was in college. Is one of the things that I was using to write all those programs. Like, I started out writing them in C, I would, you know, and doing anything with, like, sockets in C and, and I.O. and all that stuff is just... It's so tedious in C. It's not a great language if what you're going to try to be writing is like a little instant message program or something, right? Uh, and especially for like formatting texts and, and all stuff like that, it's just the tools are limited. Uh, even if you're just using a library like Curses or something, it's like, man, eh, I wasn't doing things that required C, put it that way. So once I discovered Perl, it's like, oh, well, I know all these socket APIs and all these file IO APIs, and Perl has them often with the very same names and the very same arguments. But you don't have to worry about memory access anymore. You don't have to worry about pointers. You don't have to worry about types. Like all the stuff that was not important to me went away. And I ended up like, you know, taking programs that I had written in C and saying, well, let me just write this in Perl. And it's so much easier and so much better and so much more fun. It's, it's a high level. You know, it's my, I discovered high level programming languages, right? So I'd taken C and Assembler. And, you know, Perl was the first high level programming language they interacted with because JavaScript was not that big a thing. And it was like, JavaScript, well, that's not a real language, right? Right. I don't even know. It hadn't been invented until like 1991 or two or something. But uh, maybe I have those years wrong. But anyway, it wasn't on my radar. Uh, so Perl was the first high level programming language I discovered. And since the web was big then, using a high-level programming language to manipulate strings to spit back from a web server. Like, I had written my own little web server in C, and you do not want to write web programs in C. Let me tell you, it is not not a good time. Uh, God knows how many buffer overflows I was writing in those days, because I had no idea what it was. <laughs> Security wasn't big back then. Um, so once I got on the C train, it was like only, uh, you know, a short step to, like, you know, writing CGI scripts and, you know, all the dynamic web pages and databases and all that stuff and i got a job while i was still in college i had various jobs when i was in college i worked at the help desk at, at the, the school i uh, did other random things programming things and i i wish I, I should look this up because i have such a dim view of my own history but at some point junior year senior it must have been senior year i don't know how i got this job i don't know what i saw did i see a usenet posting did someone tell me about it no memory whatsoever but i ended up working for a, a site that was going to make websites for public radio shows oh and the big one they had was uh, Car Talk. They were going to make a website for the Car Talk television show. Uh, and I had never been into NPR before that, so that kind of got me onto that uh, bandwagon. Uh, and I worked for them while I was still at school. So when I graduated, I said, well, I'm graduating and I'm going with my wife down to Georgia. She's going to uh, go to uh, school there. They said, well, you can continue to work for us. Just, you know, do it remotely because, you know, everything's all Unix. You just... Telnet into the machines, no SSH kids. Telnet into the machines and you right. know, go nuts. Uh, and I could do all my web development from there. I was like, all right, fine. So my first job out of college was a job that I had in college, you know, doing web development for cartalk.com and eventually many other websites and, uh, you know, the whole kind of dot com startup type thing. It turns out if you want to make a dot com uh, startup in the 90s, it do not have public radio stations as your customers because they don't have any money. <laughs> there was a problem with this business plan. Uh, the company lasted a pretty long time, but it was not like it, I was not getting rich from uh, dot com. What, what was the uh, name of the company? It started out as uh, New Market Ventures, then it became New Market Network, then it became Public Interactive, then it was, Public Interactive was bought by, I believe, PRI, and then maybe someone else bought them, and then they basically shut down. Oh, boy. Uh, it's a long chain of things. Although I did, I did have one chance to get rich from the the dot com, the original dot com bubble, uh, when VA Linux had an IPO. Do you remember VA Linux? Oh yeah. Uh, they offered uh, 
you know, pre-IPO shares that you could buy to anybody who had contributed to CPAN, I believe. And I'd written some CPAN. CPAN is the Perl, you know, module network. And I'd written CPAN modules. So I said, here, if you want to buy X number of shares of VA Linux, feel free to do so. But I didn't have any money to invest. <laughs> it was like, if I had had $10,000 and had put it into VA Linux, I could have made, uh, you know, a lot of money. But I had $0 because I was buying, you know... Re- buying my wife an engagement ring and planning a wedding and you know right and you were soon soon to have even more zero dollars with uh kids and uh <laughs> well they didn't, they didn't come that soon right. it's just even just you know starting your life together you know I, I i could do this or i could actually you know buy a kitchen table and furnish my new apartment that i'm trying to get in, you know so i had no money to invest and i had to watch that ipo come and go with options that i could have gotten that could have been worth some money but that was my brief brush with uh, actual uh, wealth, but uh, it was kind of good that my first fairly low-paying programming job uh, had, had a couple of good things going for it. One, I was the first and for a long time the only programmer, so I didn't have any uh, fancy pants know-it-all programmers who knew what they were doing telling me that I didn't, uh, which is kind of an interesting and fun way to learn. Uh, and two, since it didn't pay a lot of money, I was living in Georgia, where money goes much farther than it does in the Boston metro area. Even in Atlanta, you know, the kind of potentially ritzy part of uh, of Georgia, like what was I think our our brand new, no one had ever lived in it before, or maybe one person had, but like new construction, uh, beautiful uh, one bedroom uh, apartment was like nine hundred dollars a month. And I was coming from like we had just paid you know fifteen hundred or no twelve hundred dollars a month or something with some terrible crap hole in Alston like you know it was it was such a different world to uh, see how much farther your dollar goes in the south. So I was telecommuting to a job up north, giving me those fancy Yankee dollars, which not a lot <laughs> nice. of them, but they, but they went a lot farther down south. And so that was actually a good sort of kickstart to my career. Uh, Learn, being able to learn stuff on my own, not having the pressure of like, oh, I can pay my bills, I'm okay, we can save a little bit of money, put some away. Uh, yeah, that, that was a nice start. And it's, uh, you know, f- you, you had this experience of being a t- telecommuter long before most people had that opportunity. It's, it's quite common now for people to either run their own business and conduct it over the internet or have a, you know, an employer who is is cool with that. But at that time, it was like, as you said, you, you know, no SSH yet. It was like telnetting in and 56 K modem is all you need. Kind of a, kind of a <laughs> lucky break for a guy who never even had a modem when he was growing up. Yeah. And it, like, I, and I loved it. Like I was totally all for the telecommute. I never, I never even flew back up probably because they couldn't afford to fly me back up. And, but like, there was no reason to, and like the reason it worked is because, you know, it was a startup and it was like, I was the one programmer and there was the boss guy and there was like the, 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 uh, you know, second in tr- command person and a couple other ancillary person, and a couple of graphics artists. And we all knew each other because I'd worked there when I was in college and it's like, you know, a five or six person company, like, we all knew each other. There wasn't any reason like, oh, we got to make sure everyone's doing work. Like everyone, you know, you know what I mean? Like we all, if I, if we all hadn't known each other, it probably wouldn't have worked. But because I was a, a crazed workaholic and, uh, you know, insanely enthusiastic young programmer, you know, they did never had to be on me to get my work done. I was working from the moment I got up to the moment I went to sleep. No kids, right? Home all day. My wife's going off to school. That's when I, you know, blew out my wrist, so to speak, with the RSI because I was just in front of that computer, just typing all day, all night, all, you know, every waking second of my life. Uh, and that's not good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, they, they probably got more work out of you as a telecommuter because you didn't spend any of your day actually getting into work. 
and uh, it's it's totally true i i worked i worked too much yeah and so like i went through the you know all the things you hear about telecommuters is like you have to make fine time and separate your work time from your home time do all these things i learned all those the hard way you know by by screwing them all up yeah i'm still trying to figure it out as i uh you know often find myself uh taking a shower at four in the afternoon for the for the to get the quote unquote get the day started uh, but at least you took a shower at all that is a victory (laughs) itself telecommuters unite yeah. So, John, uh, you had this great car talk. You know, obviously it wasn't just car talk, but you get this this job. You get to telecommute with it. One of the nice things about that job is even though it was for some company that nobody remembers the name of now, New Market Ventures, Public Interactive, whatever, um, it's kind of a nice calling card to be able to go to a job interview in the Boston area in particular and say, hey, you guys know Car Talk, right? Well, I worked on their their website. So, did you find that that you know, obviously, I guess you you probably ended up not working for this company as a result of it going out of business, or did you leave before that happened? I'm I'm very good at leaving companies before they go under. Good. I can, I'm very uh, as we get back to hypercritical stuff. I can tell when it, when things are going south, and I am very often the first or second one out the door. Uh, as soon as I can find something better. Uh, but I was there for a long time. And like, so cartalk.com was there, you know, the bootstrap site. And like, like I said, I was the only programmer for cartalk.com for getting that site off the ground, doing everything with it. And I, and I had no idea what I was doing. Because it was like, I was literally writing my first ever CGI <laughs> script programs, like, you know, the previous month. And then I was doing them on a car talk, right? But, you know, I learned and, and got stuff together. Like, that, that was a, a great experience that I wouldn't give up because it's like, that was like the beginning of database-backed web applications. Like my my SQL didn't yet exist, but there was like MSQL, and it, uh, I started before that even using text files as my data store. So like, it's really nice to be there at the beginning of something. Like if you were the one, if you were like a, one of the Mac Toolbox guys, like you were making the first what's going to be the first popular GUI API system. Like to be in on the ground floor when you start out, nobody knows anything and you're all learning it together. Well, we no one knew anything about the web. We were all figuring it out, and I was just one other person figuring out the web together. Uh, what the company eventually came into was like we're going to do, uh, you know, we will do websites for any public radio station, and we sort of have a a turnkey solution where you come into our network. It was kind of like, you know, like a blogging engine type of thing, but it was like a multi, you know, we, we would give you your own website that looked like your own website, but it was built using these components that we'd snap together. This all sounds familiar to like modern web things, but that was the idea behind the company. So getting to build that system was even more interesting. But when I left there, surprise, the calling card of cartalk.com, no one cared surprisingly about that. And if you, I could explain to them the public radio website network that we'd built and how we'd built it, which is you know sort of a uh, a mini CMS blogger system for multiple websites with like all these different features and customizations. That is too abstract and interesting for people. The thing that got me my foot in the door more with, for future job interviews was my open source stuff. The fact that I had modules on CPAN, right? that I had written open source software that other people were using that was out there in the world that, you know, and the best would be like if I wrote something and the company I'm applying at uses that thing that I wrote. That is a much bigger calling card than, oh, here's this website I worked on. Because remember back then, everybody who worked on everything, oh, I worked on pets.com, I worked on, you know, whatever. Like everyone who was a web developer had worked on whatever. And even if I tell them, like, I didn't just work on that website, like that was all me because I was the only person in the company who had a program and there were only five of us. That 
it, it was never impressive to anyone, even in the Boston area. But having open source software out in the world uh, really, really did the trick. Well, that's cool. So I, I guess it makes sense, actually, at the time, if you were among those few people actually working on websites, then of course it would be for something big and, and name name worthy because people at that time weren't making like I'm just a crap website dot com. Yeah, there were, every website was like, whoa, they have a website and it's important. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that um, you, in addition to st- having painting classes as a kid, you had piano lessons. Um, I learned from some other podcast interview or some, some conversation you were having um, that you don't actually have a very um, broad uh, like interest in different musical um, like bands or, or types of music, I think. But um, I know that you are a fan of I think you're a fan of video game music. Is this right? Uh, I am a fan video of video game, game music. music. And you are a fan of, perhaps the largest fan of Jonathan Colton. Perhaps. And it must have been like, a, um, was there some kind of like celebration of, of the nexus of Jonathan Colton? It wasn't, his, one of those, wasn't one of his songs used in a video game? Oh, you're such a... Yes, you're, you are not his biggest fan. Wasn't, wasn't, <laughs> isn't he a singer or something? Yeah, doesn't he do music or something? Yeah. That was actually like I had one of those, you know, uh, when the band that you were into and then everyone else gets into it and you resent them? Yes. It's like whatever that phenomenon is, probably a German word for it. That's what I felt when Still Alive came out. Because it's like, you I knew Jonathan, you just like him because he was in a video game, but you don't know. Like, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't know how many hairs are on Jonathan Colton's left cheek. Yeah, you, where were you when he was doing Thing a Week? You know, so, so, you, so yes, you were that, a fan of Jonathan Colton all the way back when he was doing the, the Thing a Week? Yeah. Wow. So you have OG Jonathan Colton cred, and lately... Everybody you know has been rubbing it in your face by interviewing and like becoming close personal friends with Jonathan Colton. Yeah, so now, now that you have done a podcast with me, it is inevitable that you too will become po- close personal friends with Jonathan Colton because it is my destiny in life that everyone <laughs> I know associated with or podcast with will be close personal friends with him and I will never speak to him. Well, this is just the pre this is the preliminary. Uh I actually uh you know, I reached out to his uh press team <laughs> and they said first you need to interview John Syracuse. And then we'll talk. So Yeah, then, then he'll come over to your house for a <laughs> He'll probably come over and sing me a song that uh, I've never heard before, but which is your yeah. favorite. And uh, mm-hmm. But no, I respect him a lot. I think he's, um, you are right. You are correct. I am not his biggest fan. But I don't mean that in the way. <laughs> you don't mean in the way it sounds. <laughs> in the way where you say that as code for not liking him. It just has, it's, it's funny. It's very similar. What show was this that I heard you talking about how you, oh, maybe it was on uh, Unprofessional. Um, it was you talking about how, because I remember uh, Lex, actually, Lex Friedman had a sort of sense of surprise that you were, you were a jo- Jonathan Colton's biggest fan and not particularly fanatical about they might be giants and yeah no i'm i was never been they might be giants fan i have some of their songs i have some of their albums that we play for the kids and stuff i don't dislike them it's just it never uh i don't know it never connected to me with me the way jonathan golden did. yeah i think they're i think that they're the way i the place i'm at with jonathan colton is somewhere between 
it's some it's it's possible it's an inverse relationship with uh they might be giants and Jonathan Colton for me although i have to say that in spite of your efforts among others to get me to listen to him more i just simply haven't given him enough of a chance yet so you can't you can't force things like no. that just you have to come to it on your own or not i mean and and i i freely admit that Jonathan Colton is not like it's not it's not music that you feel like oh this is universally good anyone who likes good music should like this so that's kind of true to some degree but like it's in a genre or a style I don't know what you would call it but his his musical sensibilities were definitely very folky in the beginning and are transitioning a little bit but if that that is like poison to a lot of people you know what I yeah. mean well that's not poison to me so I should definitely give him another chance uh, and I'm sure I will have the opportunity to do that before I interview him in the, mm-hmm. in exactly. the coming weeks. Right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, John, it has been a pleasure talking to you this evening. Um, of course, we are speaking in the evening because among John's many, uh, among the many facets of his life is the fact that he is a family man with children. And uh, both John and I took the time to put our kids to bed this evening before chatting with each other. So I think it's time now for us to put this this interview to bed, so to speak. Uh, John Syracusa is, I believe, just Syracusa on Twitter. That's right. And um, you are uh, your your writing is available on Ars Technica. Uh, I don't think you do too much of the the Fat Bits um, blog. No, the staff staff blogs are mostly gone these days. With all the old URLs still work, but right now I'm doing most of my writing at Hypercritical.co. Right, and. Uh, you are, of course, still podcasting with the Accidental Tech Podcast with Marco Arment and Casey Liss. Uh, anything else that's on your on your sort of like current, you know, the the, the spread of things you're working on? You want to share with listeners? Yeah, don't forget the incomparable, the incomparable. Podcast, Jason, oh my God, Jason Snell's podcast that I am a frequent, uh, of course, guest host, a pure personer on. Well, you've got your plate full, and on top of all that, um, full-time job. I had one, one last question for you. At your full-time job where, you know, you, you know, a lot of us who know each other online, we know quite a bit about each other's full-time work because we find ourselves chatting about it on Twitter, mentioning, you know, oh, I'm just trying to figure out this latest challenge with Coco or... Um, you know, this customer did this and that. And I find with you, John, you mostly seem to have kind of um, kind of like sidelined talk about your day job as far as your public internet personality goes. And that's fine. And that's all well and good. But, you know, as, as uh, many of us listening to this show know, John Syracuse is kind of a celebrity name in our little tech circle. So I was just curious, are, are the people you work with are any of them even in like the the circle of tech kind of consciousness that they appreciate who you are <laughs> not really and I, I the main reason i i don't talk about work and stuff is because the circles i travel in online is mostly a bunch of mac nerds people who are mac developers people who are in the press writing about technology and apple and like the, those are the people who i you know virtually hang out with online right and those and i hang out with it because i'm interested in those topics but i'm not writing mac or ios applications so i don't and none of my work stuff is like relevant 
You know what I mean? Right. Uh, it's it's not as if I, you know, it's not as if I'm, uh, you know, a lumberjack for a living and that just never comes up. I am programming, but it's server-side programming. And I do have sideline conversations with a few people who might be into, you know, server-side programming and web development and stuff. But in general, these things that I do, the podcasts and, you know, the articles that I write and the writing on my blog are an outlet for things that I don't do at work. Uh, and the things that I do outside of work are generally not interesting or impressive at all to people who are not in these Mac nerd circles, right? Like we all go to WWC and hang out together and we are all like this little, it seems like we are the most important people in the world, but nobody knows what WWC is. You know what I mean? It's it's, you're breaking (laughs) my heart here. (laughs) Even though we're all going to kill each other for tickets in about two weeks. Right. It's just, it, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, you say it's like insular, it's an insular world, it's like an echo chamber, but no, but it's just like, it's a, it's a community. Uh, and if you're not in that community, it does not seem that interesting or important. Uh, occasionally, my, I will touch, like someone will read some general tech news website where our name will appear on it and say, hey, I saw this name, is that you? Or whatever, I'll say, yeah, I'm like, oh, all right. And that's it, you know. I think there might be some whispering behind your back. You might be more famous at work than you know. I think they might be getting they might be getting on to you, and they're like, ah, yeah, John, 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 John doesn't like to talk about it." Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, it's not relevant to my work. It's like, okay, well, that's all well and good, you know, guy who writes about Apple, but it's time to do your actual work, which is not related to writing about <laughs> right. Apple. So get get that done now. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, John, once again, folks, you can catch up with John at Syracusa on Twitter, and thanks so much, John, for coming on the show. This has been really fun talking to you about uh, your life and a little bit less about your career than uh, we normally talk about. Well, thanks for having me. All right, take care. This was Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkut and John Syracuse. If you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a rating on the iTunes podcast directory. You can find links and other show notes at bitsplitting.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. 